Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistines came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? People answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to him, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. When there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, 
will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I haven't tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I have three plants in my window at home. I have a tiny little cactus, I have a succulent, and a bonsai tree. The bonsai tree is overgrowing. I haven't gotten to the point yet where I actually research how to trim the branches, you know, like Mr. Miyagi and Karate Kid. I haven't gotten that far yet. And they all get quite a bit good of quite a bit of good sunlight that is on the south side of the house there. The succulent and the bonsai do pretty well. The cactus does okay too, but he's kind of a weirdo. Because he really likes to lean into the sun. And I can't get him to stand up straight at all. The other two stand up straight, but the cactus is just this funny way of reacting to the sun. So I turn him around occasionally to try to get him to straighten up, right? And naturally, he'll lean the opposite direction, but before I know it, he's all the way the opposite direction, like horizontal in the pot. I can't seem to turn him at just the right time to make him just stand up nice and orderly and straight. And it's really funny looking. It doesn't look like a cactus, like, you know, the cactus I expect to see. He knows he needs sunlight, and he trusts it enough for all that he needs. He needs it so badly, he can't even stand up straight, apparently. But he realizes that the sun is enough. And particularly cactuses realize this, too, because they have very little need for water as well. Well, the characters in our story this morning aren't exactly bending to David. Everyone's asking the same question. With all their interactions with him, they're all asking, is David actually going to be enough? This question's on the hearts of guys like Saul, David's brother Eliab, and really pretty much everyone who hears David speaking in verse 31. We're going to look at this question of whether David is enough. We're going to expand it to consider whether God is enough for us today. And as we do that, you have an outline in your bulletin. And I'd like you to just imagine that we're now walking with David and making three stops or three steps on the way to the valley. Do you remember the valley last week that was between the Israelites on one side of the mountain and the Philistines on the other? And this valley where Goliath alone stood as champion, as the one of the in-between? We're going to watch David make his steps to meet Goliath in that same valley. And we need to ask ourselves the question in this story, do we believe the Lord is enough for us? And are we, like the cactus in my window, bent to his sufficiency, bent to his enoughness, as it were, that we trust in him above all else? So here's David's first step, leaving Jesse, leaving his father. Verses 12 through 23, the author gives us yet another biography of David and his family. He's an Ephrathite, which an Ephrathite could either mean somebody from the tribe of Ephraim or somebody who lives in, ben, in, sorry, in under the tribe of Judah. And that's obviously the case here because David is from Judah. 
David's the youngest of Jesse's sons. His three oldest brothers have all followed Saul into battle. And David's doing what he's supposed to do. He's not old enough to be a soldier yet, but he can take care of dad's sheep. He can also do his part-time gig at Saul's playing music. Do you remember David's first introduction in chapter 16? That as Saul was being tormented by an evil spirit, David was called upon to come to Saul's room and sing to him and soothe his troubled heart. So those are the two things that he's doing. Meanwhile, as he goes back and forth, for these 40 days, Goliath continues to mock the Lord and the army of the living God. Jesse sends David now on another errand. Bring food to your brothers. This is a volunteer uh, army that his brothers are a part of, and apparently so volunteer that they aren't even fed. So David brings the food that he's required to, and he arrives just in time to hear the war cry from the soldiers. You can imagine that this is the exciting moment to appear near the battlefield and see what's going to happen. You can imagine David's heart is full of anticipation. What's going to happen now? Are the armies going to meet? He doesn't know anything about the man of the between. He knows nothing about Goliath's challenge. So he drops everything off with the baggage guy to rush off to see the battle. This is a funny note that the author gives us because if you remember, the first time Saul met the nation Israel and he was to be presented as God's choice for king, where did he end up? Hiding in the baggage. So even in some subtle ways, we see how the author is drawing a division between David and Saul as we have seen in previous passages. Whereas Saul sees this pile of baggage and his story as an opportunity to hide from what God's calling him to do, David sees the baggage as an opportunity for him to set aside what Jesse wanted him to do and run off and see what's going on in the battlefield. Rush into the battle. Well, Goliath is coming and going as well. He's delivering his speech every morning, And every evening, the same challenge is presented. Since we know what's about to happen, the words, and David heard him, are ominous, aren't they? They carry a special weight of expectation. But not in the people around David at all. What they see is a kid, probably about 19 years old, rushing off to see the battle, to see the excitement of war with the Philistines. But as David hears the words of Goliath in verse 23, something is turning. Something is shifting. An unexpected change is about to happen. Then we come to the second step, the hearing of Goliath, verses 24 to 30. 24 reminds us that nothing has changed from last week. Nobody has taken up the Philistines' challenge. If you remember, it was a one-on-one challenge, one champion versus another champion, and the winner would determine the fate of both nations. This wasn't going to be a, give me your three best guys and we'll give you our three best guys. You get one shot at this, and no one was willing to take that shot. All around David, soldiers are running in fear of Goliath's words. For 40 days this has been going on, and now David's experiencing how shattered these soldiers are. And you remember what shattered them last week? It was the sight of Goliath. It was the sound, the words of Goliath. Retreating without orders has always been frowned upon or extremely disgraceful throughout military history. 
Particularly, it comes to mind that during the American Civil War, generals would actually threaten to fire their revolvers at soldiers that would flee from the line of battle. They would be executed on the spot. The herd mentality is powerful. If one's heart fails, so will another. If one loses courage so much and gives in to such fear, it's very likely that more will follow. And before Goliath, everyone's heart fails. Verse 26 is the first time David speaks. So if you'd look at that with me for a moment, he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? These words are so contrary to the attitude of the rest of the army, aren't they? No one is thinking, man, I'd really love to get a chance, a shot at this Goliath guy. I'd really love to teach him what he's doing here. David points out that this uncircumcised Philistine, this man who is not part of the covenant holy family of God, is defying the armies of the living God? Who does he think he is? No one else is thinking this at all. But David's question in this actually shows us that he's not actually interested in the reward at all. Did you catch the reward? He was overhearing people talk about the challenge of Goliath, and and they were also saying, hey, the king has promised riches and his daughter in marriage and a tax-free lifestyle to whoever will kill Goliath. Saul again disappoints us. He should be, he's the tall one. He's head and shoulders above everybody else in Israel. He should be rising up as the champion, but he can't do it. Kind of reminds me of that one guy in Shrek. You know why Shrek even shows up and he says, oh, I'm going to find somebody else to go save the princess for me. This is exactly what Saul's doing. I'm going to find a champion to go fight my battle for me. Even though I'm the king, I'm the anointed one, I'm the one who it was said would actually save Israel from the Philistines. Can't do it. Got to hire somebody else. Got to pay him off. David's question here, when he mentions this uncircumcised Philistine and what he's doing and defying the armies of the living God, he shows he's not actually interested in the reward. He seems baffled by it. Again, he's thinking, why doesn't somebody teach this guy a lesson? Doesn't anybody care about the honor and glory of our God, the reputation of our nation as the people of God? He points out that Goliath is not part of the holy people of God and that the living God is the one Goliath defies. So do you see already how unique David is in Israel? He very much carries that tone of Samuel that we've seen in past chapters as well. Samuel has always kind of stood out from among the crowd and and led people in a righteous lifestyle before the Lord, a righteous way of looking at opposition. Saul has not followed that pattern at all, but David is bringing it back. Everyone flees. Everyone runs away thinking about Goliath in their own context, what it would be like if I stood against him toe-to-toe, and they give in to fear. David, on the contrary, rushes in and he sees Goliath from God's perspective. Remember that very important lesson in chapter 16, verse 7, that we should not look at the outward appearance. God doesn't do that. He considers the heart. Nobody cares about Goliath's heart. Nobody's wondering like, hey, is he really all that bad of a guy? 
Maybe he's, maybe he's got some hidden character qualities that we're, we're not seeing here, right? No, not at all. They're simply looking at the outside, but David doesn't do that. David has the Lord's perspective. And so, what does he do in light of that? As Goliath is defying the armies of the living God, David defies Goliath. This story is so familiar to us, isn't it? But you got to, for a second, imagine that you've never heard it before and think about this kid defying a giant. And this isn't something that he said, you know, in a corner off to himself. He's letting everybody know how he feels. He's putting Goliath on blast, as it were. He's posted his social media posts, and people actually care what he has to say because no one else is saying this. In response to Goliath's boast, David basically says, no, you're not him. You're not anybody big. You're basically just a beast of the field. Clearly, David sees things differently than the rest of the soldiers. Well, in this moment where David's starting to consider things and and we can see the story start to shift, you can sort of imagine now Eliab, his brother, kind of rushing in from stage right, tackling David and saying, what are you doing here? Even though the soldiers are falling away in fear, David is standing firm. His fists are clenched. His heart's fixed on vindicating the honor of the living God. And then his brother comes and messes things up, just like big brothers do. Or should we say little brothers? Little brothers are worse than big brothers. Right? (laughs) But Eliab comes in, and he immediately scolds David for his motive. You're just here to see the fight. He even goes so far as to say, I know the evil of your heart. What ironic language. Because it was just spoken a chapter ago that the Lord has seen David's heart. He's a man after God's own heart. He is chosen by God. And Eliab comes in and says the exact opposite thing. In fact, his words even echo Goliath's words in part. What are you doing here? Why have you risen up? Why have you come here? That's exactly what Goliath says to the armies of the living God. Some of our worst opposition we can find in our own households. You can see David kind of shrugging when Eliab says, you're just here to see the fight. You can imagine David going, what fight? You're all just lining up, and you're screaming, you're, oh, we're going to fight. You're, you have your brave heart moment, but then nobody moves forward, so it doesn't matter. What fight's going on? No one's doing anything. So Eliab belittles David. He says, what have you done with those few sheep in the field? Who have you left them with? That's really all you're good for, David. David's not enough in Eliab's eyes. He's good for shepherding sheep. He's good for singing songs, but he's not enough to kill a giant. David comes in one sense with truth and light. He comes with the truth of who God is. He's saying, do you guys realize what Goliath is doing? He's defying the armies of the living God. You've forgotten about the living God. In fact, interesting little note, that title, the living God, hasn't been used since nearly the end of the book of Joshua. It's been generations since, at least in the voice of Scripture, anyone has spoken up about the living God. See, Goliath is acting like God is not a living God. He's actually acting like God is more like his God, Dagon. Do you remember Dagon from a few chapters ago? 
That great story where the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant, they set it next to Dagon's statue, and the next morning, Dagon's statue has fallen face down, his head's fallen off, his hands have been severed from the statue, and the message has been made very clear. There is a living God in Israel. Goliath has simply forgotten this story, apparently. But as David comes with truth about who God is, with light and hope about, hey, let's take this guy down. Let's go. We see, as John 3.19 tells us, that men love darkness. And this is what we do when we give in to fear. Darkness covers our fear. It covers our doubts. It gives us a hiding place. And so everyone runs away from the open valley and the open mountainside, trying to find somewhere to hide so that they can indulge in their fear. It's easy for us to do that too when we have opposition before us. The reason being, as Eliab shows us, that we might doubt whether God's appointed Savior is actually enough. This is especially embarrassing for Eliab when we see the whole story because Eliab was there when David was anointed and he would have had two ways of responding to that. One, he could have been like, that's my little brother. Sure, I'm proud of him. The next king of Israel, that's awesome. What can I do to support him and talk him up? And nobody does. No older brother does that, right? Speaking as an older brother, I understand Eliab too well. Eliab knew about David's anointing from Samuel. He knew what was coming. He had every reason to believe that God was going to be faithful to what he had said. And so instead, Eliab mocks him, rebukes him, belittles him. Basically saying God's appointed Savior is not enough. Let's go to the third step now as he meets Saul. David comes to Saul with encouragement for him and his army. See, people have heard what David has said and they're like, hey, no one else is saying this. This might just be for kicks and giggles, but let's send David to Saul. Let's see what Saul thinks. Let's see if Saul actually sends him out as the champion. Wouldn't that be funny? David comes in. You can imagine him opening the double doors to the throne room, bursting in with these wonderful words in verse 32, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant shall go fight this Philistine. What a heroic statement to be made. But in that first part of the statement, he's recognized what's happened with the soldiers. Their hearts have failed. They were so overwhelmed by fear of opposition that they fled from Goliath. Their hearts gave out, as it were, as it regards their hope, their courage, their confidence. Even what they know to be true about the God whom they supposedly serve. They had nothing in the tank, and so they went home. Their hearts failed. You know, we live in a culture of mottos like believe in yourself and you can do anything. We have those kinds of mottos and others that are sort of the answer to life's opposition. What do you really need to do? Well, you just need to believe that everything's going to work out okay in the end and, and you need to press on, press through. And that's kind of a funny thing. We say, you know, believe in yourself. We also say, believe that everything's going to work out in the end. Well, they're almost the same thing. It's almost as if we just say, hey, as long as we kind of keep our head down and keep moving forward, we can face any opposition that comes against us. When we're so ready to trust in what we can do on our own, apart from God, as a sort of default way of thinking, 
It doesn't take much more than words like believe in yourself or that you are enough to help us settle into our own sufficiency. Now, I know for many of us, we probably don't listen to those classroom posters about believing and being enough and all that kind of stuff. But you know what we do believe in sometimes? Our work ethic. Sometimes that thing that we use to make that last push through opposition, that last little bit of momentum that we need to crest the hill and move forward, it might just come down to our own work ethic, our own effort. When you're facing a nine-foot giant, though, when he stands in front of you ready to clobber you, there's no amount of believing in yourself, there's no amount of overworking that can be done that can really make a difference. So unsurprisingly, Saul turns David down initially. He doesn't think that David is enough for the giant. He sees David as insufficient. Like Eliab, Saul sees where David is useful, and he doesn't see any other use for David. The opposition is far greater than a harp-playing shepherd boy can face anyway. In one sense, Saul's words or Saul's understanding of David is correct, right? I mean, the truth is is that if we had to put a 19-year-old up against a battle-hardened nine-foot giant today, we can kind of guess the outcome. If all we're relying on is the physical strength of one against the physical strength of another, not to mention expertise in war... There is no hope. David isn't enough. And over and over, the Bible proves that what we need to face opposition and to overcome opposition is something outside of ourselves. And over and over, it teaches us that a problem we continually return to is not looking outside of ourselves for what we really need. Because that's another one of our culture's motto, isn't it? Just look at what's inside you. You have everything you need inside of you just not true. And it's certainly not what David thinks. Human effort is never enough. We need something unexpected, something that might even be ridiculed or mocked or belittled or despised. And God's means of saving his people often end up being someone or something that people look at and they ask, is he really enough? Is this actually what we need? I mean, even think about preaching for a second. That's on my mind a lot, as you can imagine. I know a lot of people have looked at preaching and thought, this isn't really what we need. We need something else. You know, the Bible isn't actually even what we need. We need something else. We need self-help. We need to be able, we need to get tools that can help us find that thing inside of ourselves that we just don't know about yet. Yet God's word tells us that it is pleasing to God to use things like the foolishness of preaching to advance his cause to build up his people and to find in him everything that we need. Is it possible that this looking inwards is what you're doing in the face of conflict too? I can say it's very easy to leave God to the things that he's good at, right? Paying the penalty for my sin, I know I can't do that. I have enough Sunday school knowledge to know that I can't atone for my sin, so I'll leave that to the Lord. Maybe there's a relative that's grieving and he's miles away from me. I can leave that to the Lord. But when I'm in danger of losing my job or if I feel stuck in my job, when the car's had its 13th weird problem that the mechanics still can't figure out, when my wife just really doesn't understand the pressure I'm under at home and at work, 
which I'm not talking about my wife here. This is also, you know, she understands me. But these kinds of real issues that we face that really directly affect our well-being and security are where we find so often the temptation to not believe that God is enough. It's the difference between real needs and felt needs. You know, real needs are, are things like atonement for sin. That's a real need that every human being has. But do they feel that need? Do you feel that need this morning? Maybe you don't feel that need because you say, I know that Christ has forgiven me, and I am exalting in that, and I am resting in that, and I'm moving forward confidently in that. That's great, but I don't feel that way every day. Often my real and deepest needs are not on the forefront of my mind. It is my felt needs that get my attention. It's not the progress of my spiritual life that I'm meant to be looking after. Like Paul said to Timothy, keep a close eye on your life and doctrine. He's not just saying that because Timothy is a preacher. He's saying that because Timothy's a Christian. See, our priority in our lives is to keep a close eye on our life and doctrine, what we do and what we believe and if we're submitting to God's word or not. But that's not always a felt need. And this is part of why we look inwards then, is because we see our felt needs, and we see right next to that place in our heart where our felt needs reside, an empty place where we go, maybe something in there has the stuff, has the enough to face my felt needs. Letting doubt of God's sufficiency turn into foundational belief in our hearts, though, cause our hearts to fail. We become deaf, deaf to the truth of God and to his work. And this is where sin becomes an even greater danger, church. The promise of sin is that however we may be tempted, submitting to that temptation, giving in to that temptation, will be enough to calm our failing hearts, to quiet our fear, to drown out the giant's voice. We don't sin because we know it's wrong. We sin because we think it's right. We sin because we think it's going to make us feel better. And it never does. So let's look at David's response to Saul's rejection. How is David, the runt of the group, enough for a literal giant? His answer, lions and bears. David says, this Philistine, the one who calls himself the Philistine, remember, and says, I'm him before the living God, will be just like those beasts that threaten my flock of sheep. He says in verse 37, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. I also love the picture in verse 36. I've, it always stopped me this week as I was looking at it, as he talks about, if they turned after me, the lion or the bear, I grabbed him by the beard and killed him. That's pretty cool, isn't it? I mean, David does have this resume of, let me tell you about the lions and the bears that I've killed with my bare hands. But he doesn't stop there and just say, I'm actually him. I'm actually the Israelite. He says, no, it is the Lord who delivered me out of the paw of the bear and the paw of the lion, and he'll deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. Remember, again, his view of the Philistine is correct because he's seeing the Philistine, he's seeing Goliath, through God's perspective. And when he says, just like the Lord saved me from the lion and the bear, he's throwing Goliath in there with the beasts. He's saying that's all Goliath is. He's an uncircumcised beast of the field. I'm going to kill him. 
that's how David is sufficient, he says. The Lord will deliver me. David doesn't just make a right estimation of the nature of the giant he faces. He makes a bold assertion of the salvation of the God he serves. You've got to do both. And from that, let's remember his motivation. Number one, this beast mocks the living God of Israel. He's bringing reproach on the name of the Lord. And number two, he's causing the hearts of his people to fail. David's priorities are in line. He cares about God's glory, and he cares about the well-being of God's people. Priorities. Could it be that our priorities sometimes get mixed up? And that that may be why our hearts fail before opposition. When I see my problem as just mine and just mine to solve, and not as something under the sovereign rule of a God who allowed that problem into my life, it's easy to see God as not enough. But David has different priorities than just his own personal concerns. Back to Saul. Saul agrees. And he has this very good line. Look at verse 37. He says, Go, and the Lord be with you. What a perfectly spiritual response. I wondered as I looked at this moment with Saul if he actually believed that David could beat Goliath. You see, there's tension between verse 37 and verse 38 with Saul. He says the right thing, but then he starts trying his best to make David look like Goliath. Even the same language is used. They put a bronze helmet on him, right? David's getting dressed up in Saul's armor. Now, I know a lot of the kids' Bibles that we grew up with show the picture of little David with the helmet over his eyes and the sword's way too big. It wasn't a matter of the size of the gear, although that probably was a factor because, remember, Saul was still a tall guy. But David said, I can't go with these things because I haven't tested them. They're not proven in battle. What is proven in battle then, David? I know, this stick, those rocks, and that weird piece of rope thing that makes me throw the rocks. Those things are proven. They're tested. They've been used in the past by God through my hand to bring salvation. I'm going with that. David isn't against swords. He's going to actually pick up a sword next week and do something pretty amazing with it. But certainly David is caught up in this story, in this lesson that God's people need to learn. You can't just make David look like Goliath and hope that that helps out. You can't make a savior in your own image who you think is sufficient for some things for a while, but eventually we'll find out they're not worth anything at all. We must see our savior as sufficient for all things or we will trust in an idol that's sufficient for nothing. See, if David went out with the untested gear, David was sure he was going to lose. That, that decision of foolishness, that decision to trust in the way that Saul has done things, which, have we seen the way Saul does things? He doesn't make good decisions. We don't know how much Saul actually trusts in David in this moment, but the fact is he doesn't actually have to have great faith. Do you know that? He doesn't have to be going, David, you're the hero. I believe in you, and I have no doubts whatsoever. That's why he starts dressing him up like Goliath. What Saul needs to do is exactly what he actually did. He simply needs to move aside and make David the champion for Israel. And that'll be enough. How we need to step aside sometimes, too. Not to be passive onlookers, but submissive followers of Christ. 
This is important. When we exalt the greatness, the strength, and the sovereignty of God, our temptation is to kind of sit back and say, I'll just be here sipping out of my coconut cup with the little umbrella on it and waiting for God to do his thing. That's not David's attitude at all. He says, the Lord is the one who delivered me out of the hand of the beast, and he's going to do it again, but I'm still going to the in-between. I'm going to the valley. Not passive onlookers, but submissive followers for us of the Lord Jesus. But what do you think? Do you think David is enough in this passage? I think that the author wants to show us four proofs, and this is in the bottom of your bulletin if you'd like to write in the blanks. He shows us four proofs that David is, in fact, enough. He tells us two things that David sees and two things that David does. So that's four. First of all, he trusts in the proven faithfulness of the Lord. The proven faithfulness of the Lord. Again, remember, he didn't trust in any of the methods or the ideology of those around him. He trusted in what God had already done. The proven faithfulness of the Lord. Secondly, he sees opposition as it truly is before the Lord. See, he doesn't look and say, that giant is quite a bit taller than me. He looks and says, that giant is like a grasshopper before my God. And if he so stands between my people and life and death, if he so stands to mock my God, taking him out, he sees opposition as it truly is before the Lord. Thirdly, he fights for the honor of the Lord. His motivation is not, oh, I'm going to get to marry the princess. I'm going to get to live a tax-free life. I'm going to have all the treasure. All those things, they don't matter to David. He cares about the honor of the Lord. Lastly, he fights not only for the honor of the Lord, but in addition to that, he fights to refresh the hearts of the people of the Lord. To refresh the hearts of the people of the Lord. Remember again, as he opens those double doors into the throne room, he says, let no man's heart fail because of him. In one sense, David is an example of what an Israelite or a Christian should be doing in this situation, right? Maybe we could say, well, this is, this is like the best case scenario handling opposition. So shall we just go and do likewise? Well, like the soldiers, our hearts fail us. That's where we truly are. We talked about that last week. This is not a story that ultimately says, just be like David and you'll be fine. You see, the things that you just have in your bulletin right there, that he trusts in the proven faithfulness of the Lord, that he sees opposition as it truly is before the Lord, that he fights for the honor of the Lord and he fights to refresh the hearts of the people. Those are all things that we need someone to do for us. That we don't have the capacity, we can't just believe in ourselves enough to make happen on our own. We can't just go and do likewise. Like Eliab telling David to get back to the sheep, we're tempted to see God's work in our lives and designate it to certain things only. Take care of those spiritual things in my life, and I'll take care of my job. I'm really good at it. I'll take care of the house. I'm really good at that. We'll leave the rest to ourselves and end up overworking and idolizing our effort. And like Saul, we're tempted to make believe a savior who looks like the opposition and that we think is actually going to win because of it. We're tempted to add to what God has provided. In one sense to say, you know, there's a lot of really great things about Jesus, but if we could make him cooler, if we could somehow make Jesus fit our definition of a savior that we need, 
we could add just a couple things to Jesus. This is what Saul's trying to do, and it's what we're tempted to do as well. When our, we have financial struggles, we're tempted to think that, you know, Jesus is here. He's got all the money. He's got everything. There's no resource that is outside his grasp. So he, he's going to just, you know, refill my wallets when it feels empty. Idolizing our efforts, idolizing a God that we can dress up on our own. This is why our hearts fail. You know, Jesus came as God's chosen champion. But he was also the world's rejected hero. In John 1.11, as we've referred to so many times, you're probably getting tired of me referring to it, but it just seems so apt. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. The world he came to save rejected him then just as much as he's rejected today. Even his own, the ones who should have been looking for a savior at the time, they couldn't see Jesus as enough. Remember Nathaniel in John 1.46 his first question in hearing about the Messiah being Jesus of Nazareth, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That would be like somebody who really doesn't like Lima saying, can anything good come out of Lima? Ugh, Nazareth. What's the point? It's never going to be enough. And like David, Jesus was brought before a king. He was also brought before a governor and a roaring crowd that when they heard his opportunity and his light and hope, they decided to condemn him to death on a cross. And it is there at the cross, church, where the question of whether God's champion would truly be enough would be answered perfectly. Because it's on the cross that our Savior proved his sufficiency for all of life. He was so sufficient. He was more than enough. Not merely under the wicked judgment of mankind around him because he was standing faithful to the living God, but even under the righteous wrath of our God for our sin. For the times we've chosen to think of him as not enough. It's his death that brings us life, that brings us victory, fullness, and sufficiency. Christ was crushed so that our hearts would not fail because of fear. And so he is enough. There is a champion in Israel. There is a redeemer. Jesus, God's own son. As we just sang, the precious lamb of God, the Messiah, the anointed one, the holy one. He has vindicated his sufficiency at the resurrection. Rising from death, he proved once and for all that he is more than enough for his people. And he alone is the chosen son of God. For Saul, the good news of David was he is enough because God is with him, because God will deliver him. And for us, the good news of Christ is far better because he is far more than enough. Now, if you don't know Christ today, I wonder if having the answer to this question of whether he is enough is what you really needed this morning. Jesus calls us to himself by his own work at the cross, and we are to bring nothing but ourselves to turn from the things that he said that say he can't be enough and to find true satisfaction in him today. John MacArthur, in preaching on the sufficiency of Christ, I just put this whole paragraph in, so just get ready. The sermon's about to get really good. MacArthur says, having the Lord Jesus Christ is to have everything needed in spiritual life for time and eternity. That is, everything you face in this life, Christ is enough. Everything that you will need for eternity, Christ is enough. 
MacArthur continues. To have him is to have everything. And not to have him is to have absolutely nothing at all. All joy, peace, meaning, value, purpose, hope, fulfillment in life now and forever is bound up in Christ. And when a person receives Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they enter into an all-sufficient relationship with an all-sufficient Christ. Could it be that the lack of peace and joy and all those things that Dr. MacArthur mentions in your life over some opposition you face is because you're leaning on your work more than his grace and his unmerited favor, than the good thing that you don't deserve that he offers to you freely today? So bring your heart to life this morning as you hear these words from 1 Samuel. Remember the proven faithfulness of Christ. Teach your heart to see opposition from the perspective of the risen Christ, that he's already defeated death and sin and Satan. Start a fire in your heart for the glory of Christ by seeking his glory in all of life. And feed your heart with the compassion of Christ for others. Refresh them wherever you find them. Bring that refreshing good news of the living God. 